Music to Life, a podcast that explores the roles of music in the lives of everyday citizens, focused on those whose careers aren't necessarily associated with the music industry. My name is Matt Karasechi, a fourth-year student at McGill University. And I'm Hila Popal, a third-year McGill student, and we are so excited to be finally launching this podcast and to be sharing our insights into the roles that music plays in the lives of our guests. Often, we are given the perspective of the impact of music on individuals who have careers in music, like an artist, a producer, an arranger, a manager. But here at Music to Life, we believe that music is certainly a major component of nearly every human. Each week, we will attempt to uncover the role that music plays within the lives of our respective guests, all of whom reside around the downtown Montreal core and whose careers and daily activities vary across a wide spectrum. This week, we have Dr. Jonathan Stern, a professor at McGill University here in Montreal who teaches under the Faculty of Communication Studies. Some of his areas of study include sound studies, media theory and historiography, science and technology studies, new media, disability studies, music, and cultural studies. Welcome to the Music to Life podcast, Dr. Stern. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. I know I've been listening to a lot more music ever since the pandemic started. Do you think, have you, has that been the same for you? And have you been exploring any new artists? I uh, am listening to the same amount of music, which is a lot of music. Uh, and... Yeah, I mean, like, during the summer, my partner and I would, like, on Saturdays, we would make a point of, like, listening to something new every week. Um, I I get most of my music through Bandcamp. I mean, occasionally, you know, if it's on a major label or something, I get it through Apple Music or something like that. But um, Bandcamp gives most of the their proceeds to artists and... It's also, it just feels more like the sort of indie record stores I used to go to and stuff. So, and they, the genres that do well there are genres that I'm interested in. So like these avant-garde jazz labels and indie electronica and rock music and post-metal and just, um, so you say, you know, new stuff that I'm listening to. Well, I just, and I'm going to get the name wrong, so I'm going to open up my uh, music application so I get the name right. Um, Bandcamp Friday was last Friday, so I just bought a bunch of stuff. And the one I'm really into this week is, I don't know how you pronounce it, like Quixosis or Quixosis. He's uh He's an Andean electronic musician, and there's this record called uh, Descomposiciones, which is decompositions, um, and it's like deconstructed electronica, and uh, we listened to it this weekend, and we're like, this is absolutely amazing. So, um, and and for me especially, like, it gets harder as you get older to keep up with new music, um, because my friends who might share my tastes, like most of them aren't paying attention anymore. Uh, many other people who are paying attention aren't into the same stuff as me. So it's like, you know, it, it gets, it gets harder and you have to be a little more dedicated. Yeah. Um, yeah. but that record just like absolutely slayed me. So. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also just like so many music genres out there. It's like, I feel like it's so hard to keep up with those, honestly. <laughs> Well, you can't, but I remember this talk, I guess it was probably like in 1992 by Vernon Reed, who at the time was a guitarist for Living Color, which is like this super successful uh, black rock band. He gave a talk at the Walker 
art center in Minneapolis where I lived, and I went with some friends. And one of the things he said is, there are millions of people in their basements right now waiting to blow your mind. And that's like 91, 92, before recording technology got so cheap, before there were ways for people to sort of release their own music. And you see that now, and it's amazing. And yet it's also because it's not packaged in a way that would let you find it without some help or doing a lot of work. Um, you don't see the sort of broadening and flowering and musical taste that everybody said was going to happen when there was this explosion. It's, you know, there's still pop. You go on YouTube, who's getting the plays, who's not, um, you know. So I, and that's fine. Like, I mean, that world's fine too. Like if it makes people happy and they enjoy it, but I'm much more interested in those like people in their basements waiting to blow my mind. Uh, and, you know, I always say the best shows are surprises. What's your experience in, uh, in terms of Canadian provinces uh, with music scenes and, and the Montreal scene maybe compared to one in Ontario, for example? Well, I don't really have, like, I've never lived in Toronto or Vancouver or whatever. Um, my sense is that it's a little more spread out because the cities are more spread out and diffuse. When I was in Vancouver, there was one time I was in Vancouver and went to a few uh, shows there just because of the people I was hanging out with over, over the course of a few days. And all the Vancouver musicians were complaining about the scene, but it seemed fine. Like I went to this electronic show and like the room was full. It was like Losil and uh, Tim Hecker. And like the room was full and people were into it. And... Uh, Seem fine to me. I mean, maybe there'd be more people here. I don't know. But here it's partly, you know, I mean, Montreal is a huge city, but um, you there's like these concentrations of venues. So there's like down around St. Catherine and then there's Mile End and now sort of Mile X and up by Jean Talon. And so it's a lot easier to get around. And I actually think that proximity is good. Um, although I'm sure that there's like, I mean, you were mentioning Verdun. I know there's venues in NTG. I played a couple of them. So it's like even within the city, there's like these regional scenes. But it seems like the touring bands all come through those sort of more central areas. And the arty stuff tends to happen around that corridor as well. Would you say you'd have any tips for any maybe college bands that are listening to this podcast right now? Oh, no, you shouldn't listen to me. Uh -huh. No, seriously, <laughs> like... Even if even if I had been in like an incredibly successful band in the 80s and 90s that got signed, my knowledge would be fundamentally useless to you now. Um, <coughs> I think it's hard. Uh, you're expected to do everything, right? The onus on musicians now is to do all this self-promotion, uh, to... I think I, I like the breaking of the fourth wall and the fact that it's much easier for fans and artists to interact. I think that's great. Um, and we're seeing that. I mean, it's the flip side of like the erosion of institutions and expertise that, you know, academics sometimes complain about is people like I'll get a random email from high school kids saying we're doing a report on the telegraph. We see you wrote something about it. Could we interview you? Uh, I actually said no, but I said, here's two things I wrote in case they're helpful for your report, just because I can't do that much zooming. Um, 
So, I mean, that kind of access just didn't used to exist. And I'd say that that's a great thing and that you can have like these really profound relationships with your fan communities. I think younger bands tend to be, in my experience, people can be more competitive than they need to be because it's not a contest. Um, and, you know, it's better to lift people up. Um, you know, there's all these jokes about playing for exposure and how you shouldn't do it. Uh, but I actually feel like if your goal is to like play music, then why not? Then play music. Right. My God. Yeah. yeah. What's the, <laughs> um, you know, and in terms of making money, I guess the other thing I'd say is some of the most successful people I know are not rich They're but they're getting by. Uh, and so one person I actually recommend reading is this guy, Steve Lawson. He is, and I quote, a Britain's leading solo electric, electric bassist, which is like very, very niche. But he's got about 200, yeah. 250 subscribers, like full-time subscribers on Bandcamp. And that's enough to completely support his practice on a yearly basis. Whereas he figured out, I don't remember the number, it was like hundreds of thousands or millions of plays on YouTube or Spotify to generate the same amount of financial support. So if you do the math in your head, you're like, well, what do we need to do to sustain this? Um, following the sort of traditional paths of success and attention and stuff may actually not be the best way in cultivating a small community wherever that is might be just as effective financially. Uh, you know, do you need a label now? Uh, it depends. Labels are great because then you don't have to do that promotional work, but they also aren't going to give you, you know, big advanced recording contracts and stuff. So, um, yeah. I mean, I think anybody can put out a good record at this point with almost no gear. Um, so, uh, you know, in some senses, it's not changed and that the most important thing is the music. Um, but, you know, relationships are important, too. So, okay, I do have some advice. I'm, I lied. <laughs> so how would you compare your music listening experience today versus uh, when you were first discovering a love for sound and for music? I know it's, it's changed drastically just the te in the technology. Yeah. Um, well... People talk a lot about how there used to be this golden age where people would just sit and listen to a record, and that doesn't happen anymore. I think 99% of that is actually bullshit, and that there 1% is true. 1% is true for like 1% of the world. I mean, I can point to times in my life where I've sat and listened to a record, but the, those were few and far between. Like, I... I would listen to music in my bedroom, as I think many teenagers did on a record player. doesn't matter if that then became a CD player, an MP3 device. I don't really think any of that. That's not that important. Driving around in a car. I grew up in the Midwest. Cars were all about, like, independence and freedom and, you know, all that, all that, all that good stuff, you know, never mind that, you know, we're burning fossil fuels and poisoning the atmosphere. That was not on my mind as like a 16 to 18 year old. Um, and so it was like driving around. It was talking with my friends about music. And actually that's something that I missed for a big chunk of my adulthood. And thanks to the internet 
have really found communities of people with whom I can have deep and lengthy conversations about music that's of mutual interest or not. Um, also, the another great joy of middle age is like, I don't really care what I like. I just, if I like it, I like it. If I don't, I don't. It doesn't mean anything to me. Whereas, you know, somehow what was good and what was not of was like of world world historical importance when I was younger. Yeah. <laughs> so that's changed a lot. Um, and now I can also just enjoy other people's enjoyment. Like we watched the Super Bowl with some friends over Zoom. And, you know, the weekend's performance was like, it was fine. Am I yeah. going to go out and buy a bunch of weekend albums? No. But, like, it was fine. It was interesting to see, like, how do you, you know, how do you integrate COVID safety protocols into a spectacle like that? <laughs> um, I liked the I liked the numbers with, like, actual musicians out with him better personally. Although, I mean, this is always a problem. I actually love electronic music, but how do you perform it? Uh this is like a, it's a huge, you know, every, well, not this year, but like every year I go to Mutech and this is always the question. Um, oh, yeah. I think with Mutech, it's all like the visuals and stuff, which is so, yeah. like such a huge part of the whole show. And it also makes it so cool yeah. also. Yeah, now people aren't as familiar with electronic music or just like how mm -hmm. to perform it. So I think there's like a disconnect a little bit in performances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, also... You know, DJs didn't used to be like in the front of the room. They used to be on the side in the or yeah, in the back. Yeah. And some electronic musicians I know have actually really tried hard to not be at the front of the room because they think that that's the wrong relationship to the music. Um, but what they what they found often, I mean, two different people have told me this story is like they set up this whole elaborate show, and like these are fairly well known people in their worlds. And they're in the middle of the room instead of the front of the room. And so the whole room turns and faces the middle. I've, I've heard of, yeah, I know uh, Kate, yeah. Kate Trinata, who's like a big Montreal mm -hmm. guy. He, he mm -hmm. did that uh, just right before COVID struck. So, and, I, and yeah. it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool. But like, they didn't want to be the center of the thing. And they just moved to the center <laughs> to of the, the very thing, center. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. like theater in the round or something. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Also, Matt, what you said before with the whole scene of like a guitar and a drum, I think it's maybe because when we grew up, we always thought that that was such a cool scene. But I was thinking just now for maybe younger generations now, maybe they would think that like a, a huge like DJ booth with someone turning knobs is actually cool. So maybe that whole thing is just changing now. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I think, I mean, like, you know, rock is no longer in the top 40 I mean, although country is still huge, like country isn't cool among um, most of the like academic set and most of the students at McGill that I know, um, but it's huge. It's real popular music. And that's all, you know, people on stage playing instruments. And sometimes there's a backing track or they've all got a click track in their in their in your monitors or whatever. So it's not like it's pure it's not as authentic as it's like performed to be. Um, but I think there's been like a genre migration that way. Uh, but like there's no pop that's like in the rock idiom really right now that I can think of. I mean, maybe Phoebe Bridgers and that like singer songwriter thing, maybe. Um, more, but, uh, yeah, I just, um, I think 
you know, most of what people have been listening to, at least for the last decade, if not longer, like in terms of really popular stuff, he is electronic. Yeah. Um, stylistically. And then it's much more on the singer. I mean, that's what the weekend show was like this guy walking around with a microphone. Exactly. Singing. How do you think with this whole new COVID world and how it has altered the way people have been listening to music or access music or appreciate music? What are your thoughts on that? I don't really know. I mean, most people don't go to see live music to begin with. So in that sense, it might not have changed much. I think the people most profoundly affected are musicians and like the fans that like to go see shows. Uh, and I mean, people, you know, have been watching more uh, videos, more like watching shows online. We've done that a few times you know, and some are better than others. Uh, so would you think it's a lot more about like the whole entertainment aspect that comes with music and less about maybe the emotional side and how music touches you? Oh, no, I think for some it's like super emotional. The critic Ann Powers wrote this sort of gut-wrenching essay about uh, 2020 and music, uh, which I highly recommend you check out. Uh, and I think, yeah, totally... Uh, I think it's equally emotional. I think it's a lot of people listening by themselves. Uh, and so maybe that's it. More people are listening to more music by themselves. I spend an obscene amount of time in headphones. We live in a loft. And my partner is also a professor. So it's like an academic call center here. Um, so like I've got these acoustic panels behind me. So that sound that reflects around in the room doesn't get into the mic. This, there's a mic right here in front of me. Uh, and then she's got acoustic panels behind her. And, uh, you know, we do what we can. We didn't want to remodel our whole apartment to just because it was uh, just because we had to work at home for hopefully not much more than a year. Uh, well, we'll see. But, uh, but uh, I, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I think that emotional side is there, but I think it's probably much more individualized than it might have been otherwise. Um, you know, I think people are more emotional, not less. Like, there's a lot of talk about COVID and mental health. I think it's true for, like, every sector of people I know. Like, my professor friends, my students, my, like, friends from high school and undergrad, my musician friends, like everybody's going through a lot right now. And the thing about COVID is like, I feel fortunate. I'm, you know, I've got a steady job. I live in this nice place. I've got my music toys to play with. I've got my partner and my cats. Like I, the world, even though I'm high risk, the world's my oyster, uh, you know, but it still sucks. So imagine if you don't have all that, how much it sucks. Uh, so, you know, everybody has lost something with COVID, and I think we haven't really fully reckoned with that as a culture. And music will be one way. I mean, there's going to be a lot of COVID records coming out, and music will be one way that people deal with it. It's also like the range of sensual pleasures available to people, like... You know, there's a reason why all of a sudden there was all this stuff about sourdough starters and baking bread and stuff like that. Um, you know, and then when uh, Quebec opened up, there was like this spike in STDs all of a sudden. Like there's all these sensual pleasures are being denied to people because we're sort of stuck in our world. And music is one of those 
I mean, obviously painting is too, but music's like a temporal thing that unfolds over time and in space. Um, and so I think it can also, it probably, I wouldn't say that it's more entertainment and less emotion. I think it just varies with the person. Um, and whether, I mean, some things, you know, some things have gone counterintuitively. Like you would have thought that sports viewership would have gone up, but all the studies say that sports viewership is down. I don't know why. Like, I don't understand why that is. I don't know that anybody does. Um, obviously, Netflix is like through the Skyrocket. roof. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and sure, but uh, yeah, I don't know how that I don't know how that goes. So, do you think that because of because people are, are so limited to s- certain central experiences, that uh, people have really been focusing on like quality of sound as well to it uh, in some like for music because people have everyone has access to music. So I, I know for me, for instance, like I've really been focusing on like the quality of sound that I get um, when listening to music. No. I don't. I think some, I mean, it's, you know, it's like a, it's a, what do you call it? A potential dimension of COVID consumerism, right? So you can say, I'm stuck at home. I'm going to get myself some really nice speakers. I'm going to get myself some nice headphones. Uh, I'm going to get a new amplifier. I'm going to get a component system instead of like my little, uh, you know, dock for my eye device or whatever. I, people I'm sure have done that. And I'm sure that stuff is selling really well. Um, but I've actually written about this and studied a bit. I don't actually believe for most people there's any relationship between audio definition and pleasure. In other words, higher definition music for your average listener doesn't mean that they enjoy it more. I think for certain kinds of serious listeners, especially people that listen for details, whether it's like the timbre or the stereo field or really subtleties of performance, people who don't focus on like just the front and center melody and the beat, um, for them, it might make a difference. If and, and obviously also like sound quality or definition is a more precise term, matters um, matters a lot if you're into the technical side of it as well. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's like anything else. Like, it's a subculture. There's a subculture of audiophiles who, like, derive profound enjoyment even from audio cables. Yeah. Which is like, that's... that's Super a, niche. It's too far for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but a couple of years ago, like, we have a component system and our, our amplifier died. And so we... Uh, we went and splurged on a new one that'll hopefully last for the rest of our lives because uh, I was tired of these like AV things crapping out after five or ten years. And it also doubles really well as a cat heater. The cat likes it's 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 not tube or anything. It's just transformers, but it warms up. It's in front of the TV. The cat comes and sits on it, and so it's uh, also <laughs> the cat so really likes the amplifier. Yeah, that's the most important part. Yes, in our household, yes, it is. (laughs) So we were wondering if you were able to speak to the intersection of music and disability. Uh, For example, how has your disability shaped your musical style or maybe the other way around if your music has shaped that? Yeah, well, it depends on which disability, but I'll talk about one in particular. Uh, So I'm on a drug with a bunch of side effects I have. I have metastatic thyroid cancer, so technically I have stage four cancer, which sounds horrific, 
and I don't recommend it. However, there are new drugs that basically turn it into a man something you manage like a chronic illness. And my doctors always say reassuring things like, don't worry, you'll die of something else. Uh, which, you know, it's glib, but, uh, you know, if you, can't, if you can't have a little gallows humor with a disability, when can you? So one of the side effects is called a hand and foot syndrome. So it makes my hands super sensitive. And bass strings, as you know, are basically like telephone cables. They're huge. And the standard bass string is round wound, which means... That I mean, running your finger along it, it's almost like uh, sandpaper, or like a cheese grater or something. I mean, it's not that sharp, but it's very textured. I'm hypersensitive to it. And I always played with my fingers or a pick, depending on the song. So I had to figure out a way to deal with that. Um, I got these gloves called the Musician's Practice Gloves. I tried a lot of gloves. And they're okay. They're not great. They're okay. Um... And so that has affected my playing in certain ways. Like I would, you know, play with my fingers and then I would strum and uh, use my backs of my fingernails and stuff like that. And I really can't do that now because it'll hurt. I had to figure out how to play with gloves and a pick. But the hilarious thing is I play shows. I've played shows with the gloves. People always come up to me afterwards and they say, do those help you play faster? (laughs) Right. It's like the total... It's like that gear nerd question. Exactly, like, yeah. Is that an actual better button? Can I buy this and will it make me better at, at my instrument? And they're definitely a style um, thing as well, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the gloves come in black, tan, and white. The white ones look too much like Bugs Bunny vaudeville performer <laughs> yeah. for me. Uh, but I have to wear the tan ones for lessons because the black ones, my teacher, because I do my lessons on Zoom, um, uh, my teacher uh, can't see my hands. And that's the other thing is I've been learning a new instrument called touch guitar that's <coughs> got eight strings. It's tuned from the low B. It's the B flat before below the low B of a five-string bass. And the highest note is the high D of a guitar because it's tuned in fifths for the music nerds out there. Uh, and so what it means is you basically have the range of a piano on the neck of a guitar-like instrument. And you play it by tapping using both hands. Um, uh, so it's a completely different technique for me, um, but it's a lot less painful. I, but I've only been playing it now for about 18 months, so I'm nowhere, I may have been playing bass for 40 years, so I sometimes get very frustrated and at other times, but it's, that's what I've actually been focusing my practice sessions on, and it's made me a better bass player, too. Um, Do you prefer one sound over the other, like with the different guitars? Well, they just do different things for different music. Like in okay. Hard Red Spring, which is this sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, authenticity-drenched, lyrically-driven indie rock band, that is not a band for touch guitar. That is a band for bass. In that band, I also play a ukulele bass sometimes, which has these wonderful, smooth, flat-wound strings on it. Um, so, And actually, I just mail-ordered a bunch of tape-wound strings to see if I could put those on my basses that would be even less painful than playing with the gloves and the rounds it's a is that the same size as a regular ukulele yeah wow yes yeah no it's tiny and so like large man small just instrument yeah no it's a total gag and sometimes we've been doing sound checks and there's some drunk guy at the bar like (laughs) oh and then i plug in and it sounds like an upright bass plugged in it has huge low end i mean it's not very like you 
I'm not going to be playing any bass solos on it, but it's not really for that. It's for like sort of thumpy. You could do Motown. You could do like James Jamerson on it and it would sound great. That's cool that uh, it would sound, it sounds so powerful, but it's just this little tiny uh, It's a miracle of modern ah, engineering. It's, it's all the strings and the pickup and the electronics. Yeah. It's definitely not something I've ever seen before, but I'd want to see it live. Google ukulele bass and you'll see you'll see it. I know I, I used to use a gitalele, so like just like a little guitar, but it's the size yeah. of a ukulele. It was a little bit different and obviously not as powerful, but it was pretty cool. Just the yeah, type of technology smallness, they have. You know, smallness is good for good for comedy and uh, live yeah. performance. And it was setting. great for travel. I was traveling with it, so it was yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know some double bass players that when they double... So they need, uh, you know, they or they have a gig where, you know, like a, you know, if you play upright bass, you get these cheesy like cocktail music, jazz gigs sometimes that actually pay okay. And if they're in a cramped space, they'll bring the ukulele bass instead of the upright. Because uh, it totally lends itself to like walking bass lines and stuff like that. You are currently teaching a class about technology and disabilities, correct? Uh, that is correct. Uh, what type? Tom's four one one. Sign up for it next year if you're interested <laughs> I will. in the subject. I will. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually interested in taking it as yeah. well. <laughs> Great. You talked a little bit about like um, the gloves as a method to help you with like dis- your disability. But uh, what technologies are are there available to people who have listening disabilities? Uh, and yeah, what what are some more modern ones maybe that are available? Uh, you mean higher tech? Yeah, higher tech, exactly. Okay. Well, so the first thing I would say is that higher tech isn't necessarily better okay. for uh, disability. So, for instance, the book we're reading uh, for tomorrow's class uh, talks a lot about disability and design. And the author visits Gallaudet University in uh um, Washington, D.C., and goes to this dorm that's designed for, it's a, it's a deaf space. Now, um, since I'm not going to assume that all your readers know everything about deafness, the first thing you need to know about deafness is that it's a spectrum. Uh, some deaf people have residual hearing. Some deaf people can't hear anything. Some deaf people use cochlear implants. Some pe- deaf people sign. Some do not. So you need a space that accommodates, okay, if you need to sign with people, you need very long sight lines, right? Whereas what you don't need if you're deaf is like a room that's acoustically isolated from other rooms the way you might like in a McGill lecture hall or something. So there are all these like half height walls in this space, for instance, so people can see each other at a distance. And then... People will blast music, and I mean really blast it. You say, well, why? Because you can feel the bass. And so, um, and there's also this great story. Um, I forget who wrote this piece. Uh, the essay is called Crip Club Vibes. And there's this great story about this punk club in um, San Francisco that started out as a deaf social club. And then, like, these punk musicians found it, and they wanted a performance space, and, like, they worked it out with the deaf people, and it was perfect. Um, And there were, you know, there would be people who would show up for the performance who were, like, not punk rock at all, but enjoyed it in a completely different way. Um, And there's also techniques like bringing balloons to shows and things like that. So... 
Sometimes it's the low tech. I mean, yeah, there's cochlear implants that can connect to your iPhone or whatever, but that's not actually the most exciting thing. It's about designing spaces. Now, I've got one other technology for auditory disability that you probably don't think about this way. And this is something I write about in my the book that I have coming out in November, which is loudness itself. We live in a culture that's designed for people to have some hearing loss. The ideal audience member at a techno club, at a rock show, at a sound art performance, or for that matter, when you go to the bathroom and it's one of those high-powered, um, high-throughput hand dryers, all of those spaces presuppose that you have a certain amount of hearing loss, right? So um, it is effectively saying in these spaces, we have a preference for a little bit of hardness of hearing over like perfect hearing ability. Um, and this is one of the things like scholars of disability have uh, write a lot about the, the unstated preference for ability over disability. But a lot of that's like ideological where it's fantasy. In fact, people uh, live in worlds where certain kinds of impairments or disabilities aren't thought of that way necessarily. Right, like you think about being able to tolerate very loud sounds at a construction site or at a musical performance is a kind of like macho stoicism or a sort of hedonistic pleasure in intensity or something like that. But it is impairment because that's why you don't bring babies to rock concerts because they, they have much, much, much more sensitive hearing. Um, now, do I think people should wear earplugs to loud events? Sure. Um, if you ask me, should I wear plugs? I'll say, yeah, and you should spend 20 bucks on the ones that are like, not just made out of foam, but are still cheap enough to lose, <laughs> um, for, for, for our bourgeois listeners, obviously, <laughs> if you're listening in the global South, I understand 20 bucks is uh, yeah. not cheap enough to lose. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I think, um, you know, I, I think realistically, lots of people don't do that. And I didn't think about it when I was your age. Like, I just wasn't something on my mind. I was just excited to go and the loudness was, frankly, part of the thrill. Um, and it's super interesting hearing about that, too, because it wasn't really something that I thought of. And now I feel like every time when I walk into the maybe like a bathroom and hear those super loud air dryers, I'll know. Yeah. Why what do you think that? is the like reasoning behind people promoting a kind of impairment or not promoting it, I guess, but just elevating the sound? Uh, Cause they could just reduce it a little bit and it wouldn't impair as much. Right. Yeah. And it would also sound better. And it would sound better. Yeah. I mean, there's this thing where like, I remember going to see this uh, post metal band called ISIS. It was actually their last show ever, which was, I mean, I didn't, when I bought the ticket, I didn't know that that was going to happen. And, you know, they have the, like the cookie monster vocals and the downtuned guitars and all that stuff. Show was not that loud and it sounded great. You could hear everything. Whereas if they're like maxing out the power of the PA, I've, you know, I've been at shows where like the, you know, it's a singer songwriter thing and the person running sound is like cranking. It's hard to appreciate the, uh, the sound coming off when it's so loud, yeah. Yeah, and the acoustic guitar is starting to sound a little distorted yeah, exactly, and whatever, yeah, and I'm just exactly. like, that's not that's not what these people are trying to accomplish aesthetically. Um, I, you know, I think it's partly a sort of 
excitement about the power of technology and what um, Arnold Pacey calls virtuosity values. We have the capability, so we should do it. Um, so I think part of it's that. Part of it is the excitement. And I mean, so think about all the things that loudness does for you, right? It produces intimacy, right? So if you want to talk to somebody at a loud show, right? You run, you walk up to them, and then you yell in their ear like, isn't this awesome? <laughs> and then yeah. they turn and yell in your ear and say the same thing. It is, um, it's, it produces a kind of intimacy, right? It produces immersion, like you become unable to focus on anything else and you feel it in your body. Like all of those things have been like documented in the research. They've been... Uh, written of, and it's like multiple musical subcultures, right? So, I mean, I mentioned like heavy music, but you you can find uh, you can find it in techno, you can find it in like uh, dub music, you can find it in sound system culture, you can find it in noise music. I mean, frankly, that's what Wagner was trying to do in with his you know total artwork in the 19th century, and it's the same thing with cinema sound, like. Uh, when uh, we were, when I forget what movie we went to, but we saw the preview for Dunkirk, which is like also like this work of like virtuosic sound. It was just absolutely skull splittingly loud. And it was a part, of, you know, to convey the gravity and the, it becomes, you know, it's like brightness or color hue or anything else. It's just another kind of intensity that people work with creatively and that people. Enjoy now. Some people don't enjoy it, and so they don't go to those spaces. Um, yeah. Is it sad to say that I almost miss yelling into someone's ear at a concert? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> uh, I don't. Yeah. yeah. I I I miss that, and I can't even yeah, yell because I have sure. a paralyzed vocal cord. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, unfortunately, we're running out of a little bit of time, but um, at the end of our podcast, we do a couple rapid-fire questions for a guest, uh -huh. and so we're going to ask you a couple questions and just say um, the first thing that pops up into your head. Perfect. <laughs> so, uh, the first question, what was the favorite band when you were younger, your favorite band? you got to give me an age, though, because there's okay. a lot of youngers. <laughs> Sorry. In your 20s, maybe. Uh, I'll go with Jane's Addiction. Actually, Jane's Addiction is late teens, but whatever. I picked it. It's just the wrong era. It's like 19 would be Jane's Addiction. If you had to choose one song to listen to for the rest of your life, what song do you think it would be? Honestly, I have no idea. Um, I haven't heard of them. <laughs> uh, that's so hard. I, uh, I'd probably go with something really ambient. And kind of spacey because you get sick of any kind of melody or rhythm at a certain point. Um, so I probably, I don't know, maybe one of the tracks off this Descompositionis record just because it'd be impossible to like truly know it. So um, the next question, bass guitar or stand-up bass? Bass guitar, 10 times out of 10. More portable, can do more stuff with it. But stand-up bass is, you know... There's no substitute for it. When you want it, you want it. Favorite bassist of all time? Oh, my God. I don't I know, know. I know. I know. There's one, so many. So I get one? I You can have know. three. You can have three. Okay, three. I'll go with Julie Slick. I'll go with uh, Tony Levin. And I'll go with somebody I've been listening to lately, which is Andrew Dow.
Um, so what's the best concert or the most memorable concert you've ever been to, ever? Uh, I've been to a lot of really memorable concerts, but I'm going to pick P-Funk in a parking garage in Minneapolis in 1991 or 92. This is like the absolute nadir of their career. And like what idiot promoter puts a show? It was literally you drove into a parking ramp and then walked up a level. And I remember there was a sign, Bootsy Collins, also a favorite bassist of mine, will not be, you know, performing. There will be no refunds. Um and it was right after the Delight record came out, which Bootsy was on, but not the rest of P-Funk. And so all these, like, there were all these bewildered, like, college kids. And I'd only learned about P-Funk a couple years before because I was shared a, we were on a bill with this funk band called Pink Cabaret that they wore, like, white, um, like, skin-tight suits and played, like, just the most obscene but incredible music, you know, it's Minneapolis, so Prince. Um, um, so anyway, I, the bassist like clued me into Bootsy Collins and I just fell in love with that music. So that was that's an unforgettable show, uh, even though it was wrong in so many ways. And just lastly, what's, uh, what's been your favorite class to teach at McGill or something, class you've been most passionate about, do you think? <laughs> the one I'm teaching, whichever class I'm teaching right now. That's a great answer. Honestly? <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'll tell you, I came back to 210, the intro to comms course. I, after a few years away from it, I've been teaching a version of it for almost 20 years. And I was like, I need a break or I won't grow as a teacher. And about five or six years away from it, I was like, no, there's a holy fire to that class that uh, I just matter. The stuff in there just matters so much, no matter who you are. Um, but I also love the disability class because it's... Uh, you know, it's for a certain population of students who normally don't get to be front and center. And then I also uh, love all my graduate seminars where, like, the students are making me... I mean, not that the undergrads don't make me work. You guys really do <laughs> kick my ass sometimes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but the grad... No, in a good way. <laughs> I mean that intellectually. I mean, it's an intellectual ass kicking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, the uh, but the, you know, grad students are like, you know, on their way to becoming professional academics. And so, like, those are always a thrill because people will just come up with stuff you could have never come up on your own with on your own. So, so the one I'm teaching, the, my favorite class is whichever one I'm teaching right now. Awesome. Well, that's all the questions we have. Thank you so much for coming on to our Music to Life podcast. It's been awesome to chat with you. We really appreciate yeah. it. Super interesting. Yeah, totally fun. Yeah. Uh, it was a good time. So, thank you. Uh, thanks yeah, a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If anybody's listening to this, <laughs> stay tuned for the next guest on our next podcast. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you so thank much, Doctor Stern. Dr. Stern.